Chapter Fourteen of the Glory of the Conquered. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Glory of the Conquered by Susan Glasswell. Chapter Fourteen. To the Great Unwhimpering. Tell me some good stories about doctors," said Georgia. I want to use them in something I'm going to write. Isn't it dreadful, said Mrs. McCormick, turning to Dr. Parkman. She even interviews people while they eat. Mrs. McCormick had that manner of some mothers of seeming to be constantly disapproving, while not in the least concealing her unqualified admiration. I'm not interviewing them, mother. Skillful interviewers never interview. They just get people to talk. But what is it you're going to write asked the doctor a eulogy or denunciation both something characteristic meaning that something characteristic about doctors would include both good and bad well they're pretty human aren't they laughed georgia and think how grateful we should be ventured carl for the inference of something good dr parkman looked over at him with a hearty that's right relieved that his friend could enter into things at all in the library before they came in things had gone badly mrs mccormick held persistently to the topic of carl's eyes putting forth all sorts of home remedies which would cure them in a night he had grown nervous and irritable under it and mrs hubers several times had come to the rescue with her graciousness she was worried herself the doctor could see that in the way she looked from her husband to him scenting something not on the surface he was just beginning to fear the dinner was going to be miserable for them all, when Miss McCormick broke the tension by asking for stories. "'Tell us what you're going to write, Georgia,' said Ernestine, she too seizing at it gratefully, and then our doctors will have a better idea of what you want. "'Well, I was talking to Judge Lee the other day, and he told me some good stories about lawyers, characteristic stories, you know. So I thought I would work up a little series—lawyers, doctors, ministers, and so on— and see how nearly I could reach the characteristics of the professions through the stories I tell of them. Not much of an idea, perhaps, but I know a man who will buy this stuff. Ernestine was smiling in a knowing little way. Do you want to begin with something really characteristic? she asked. That's it, something to strike the nail on the head, first blow. Then lead off with the story of Pasteur's forgetting to go to his own wedding. There's the most characteristic doctor story I know of. That's a direct insult, laughed Carl. Why, not at all, Carl, protested Mrs. McCormick. Everyone knows you were on hand for your wedding. Yes, and a good thing he was, declared Ernestine. I don't think I should have been as meek and gentle about it as the bride of Pasteur. I fancy I would have said, Oh, really now, if it's so much trouble, we'll just let it go. No, Ernestine, said Mrs. McCormick seriously after the laugh. I don't believe you would have said that and then they laughed again well it's a good story she insisted and characteristic i believe after all that pasteur was a chemist and not a doctor but the doctors have appropriated him so the story will be all right if you want to tell some stories about pasteur said carl tell about his refusing the royal decoration he told the emperor that the honour and pleasure of doing such work as his was its own reward and that no decoration was needed that story made a great hit in the scientific world. But is it characteristic? 
asked georgia slyly well he laughed it ought to be another one of the independent kind said parkman is bilroth he was summoned to appear at a certain hour before the emperor of austria bilroth was with a very sick patient until the eleventh hour and arrived a little late in business clothes the scandalized chamberlain protested telling him he could not go in like that whereupon bilroth blustered out i have no time to spare tell his majesty if he wishes to see me i am here if he wants my dress suit i will have a boy bring it around did he get in asked mrs mccormick anxiously i think he did although undoubtedly miss mccormick will be too modern to say so there was a story i always liked about a vienna doctor he continued he was anxious to guide the stories for karl had seemed suddenly to sink within himself he understood why he might have foreseen where this would lead for there were other stories of medical men stories which fitted a little too closely just now he was especially sorry he had mentioned bilroth this shows another side of the doctor he went on after a minute and as you are going to give good as well as bad this may help out on the good side there's where you will be short a woman came to see this doctor regarding her consumptive son he told her there was nothing he could do for him adding if you want him to live you must take him to italy the woman broke down and told him she could not do that that she had no money the doctor sat there thinking a moment and then sent over to the bank and got her a letter of credit covering the amount involved another doctor who happened to be near asked why he did that you can't possibly support all your needy patients he said why did you choose this particular case of course he added it was very good of you no said the doctor it was not good of me there was nothing good about it but i was guilty of proposing to her something i knew she could not do after opening up that possibility it was my obligation to see that she could fulfil it i suggested what i knew to be the impossible after i suggested it it was my business to make it possible don't you think that a pretty good sense of justice he asked of ernestine what might be called an inner squareness said georgia as ernestine responded only with the fine lights the story had brought to her eyes karl did not seem to have heard the story ernestine looked toward him anxiously now i'm going to tell a story she said with a gaiety thrown out for rousing him a very fine story everyone must listen he looked over at her and smiled at that listening for her story this man's name can't be printed because he lives in chicago and it might embarrass him karl and dr parkman exchanged glances with a smile this is a characteristic story as it shows a doctor's tyranny there was a boy taken ill at a little town near chicago the country doctor telephoned up to the boy's father and the father telephoned the family physician who from the meagre facts scented appendicitis i don't know how he knew it was bad but i believe a good doctor is a pretty good guesser at any rate he suspected this was serious and told the father they would have to go down there at once the father said there was no sunday train then get a special said the doctor we'll probably have to bring him up to the hospital to operate and can't do it in the automobile the father protested against the special saying it would be very expensive and that he did not think it necessary the doctor said he did think it necessary or he would not have suggested it the father demurred still more and the doctor rang off then you called up the railroad office yourself wasn't that it turning to dr parkman who grew red and looked genuinely embarrassed 
Oh, dear, in mock dismay. Now I've mixed it up, haven't I? Well, this doctor, I'm not saying anything about who he is, called up the railroad office and calmly ordered the special. I must not forget to say that the man who did not want to spend the money had an abundance of money to spend. Then he called the boy's father and said, Be at the station in twenty minutes. The special will be waiting. You will have nothing to do but sign the check. Well, said Mrs. McCormick, when Ernestine stopped as though through, would the father pay for it, and did the boy have to have an operation, and did he get well? Mother doesn't like this new way of telling a story, said Georgia. She likes to hear the got married and lived happily ever after part. I'm sure no one said anything about getting married in this, said Mrs. McCormick, serenely. But don't you think that a fine doctor story? Ernestine asked smilingly of Dr. Parkman. A very bad story to tell. Miss McCormick's general reader will say, Oh, yes, of course, he was just bound to have an operation. Georgia, this was from the man at the head of the table, and there was something in his voice to arrest them all. If you are in earnest about wanting stories of doctors, why don't you tell some of the big ones, some of the stories medical men have a right to be proud of? What are they? she asked promptly. Tell me some of them. Dr. Parkman's eyes were on his plate. He was handling his fork a little nervously. If I were going to tell any stories about medical men, Carl went on, and in his quiet voice there was still that compelling note, it seems to me I should want to say something about the doctors who died game, just a little something about the men who took their medicine and said nothing, men with the nerve to face even their own understanding, cut off, you see, from the refuge of fooling themselves. Ask Dr. Parkman about the surgeons who lost their hands or their lives through infection. Those are the stories he knows that are worth while. He's only giving you the surface of it, Georgia. Tell him you'd like a little of the real thing. Ask him about the men who died slow deaths, looking a fatal future in the face from a long way off. He mentioned Bilroth just now, telling a funny story about him. There's a better story than that to tell about Bilroth. You know he was a man who knew so much about the heart. He probably understood the heart better than any other man, and by one of those leering tricks of fate he had heart disease himself. He watched his own case and made notes on it, that his profession might profit by his destruction. There you have something worth writing about. In his last letter home he said he had ten days to live, and he missed it by just one. He lived eleven. If you're going to tell any stories about Bilroth, tell that one, Georgia and then a story or two showing that while many men take chances, it's the doctor who takes them most understandingly. Why, medical science is full of an almost grotesque courage. Don't you begin to see how the doctor's been trifling with you, Georgia? He paused, but no one felt the impulse to speak. His eyes were hidden by the dark glasses he was wearing, because of that cold, or whatever it was, in his eyes. But his face told the story of an alert mind, a heart responsive to the things of which he spoke. Then he went on and talked a little, quietly enough, but with a passionateness, a high note of understanding of the men who had the nerve, eyes open, to face the things fate handed them. It was as if he were looking back over the whole sweep of the world, and picking from many times and many places the men whose souls had not flinched to the death. And at the last he said, smiling, the kind of smile one meets with a tear, Let's have a little toast. He raised his glass of claret, and for a minute looked at it in silence, and then he said slowly, his very quiet voice and that little smile tempering the words, 
Here's to all those fellows who went down without the banners or the trumpets, to the boys who took the starch out of their own tragedies, to those first-class sports who made no fuss about their own funerals. Here's to the great unwhimpering. Dr. Parkman choked a little over his wine. The tightening in Ernestine's throat made it hard for her with hers. Georgia's cheeks were burning with enthusiasm for the story she saw now she could write, and even Mrs. McCormick had no questions as to just what men had died that way. Then it was Carl himself who abruptly turned the conversation to the more shallow channels of dinner talk. After that, he was not unlike a man who had had a little too much champagne. He startled them with the nimbleness of his wit, the light play of his fancy. It was as though he had a new vocabulary, a lighter one than was commonly his. There was a sort of delicate frolicsomeness in his thought. For a reason unknown to her, it troubled Ernestine. She looked from Carl to Dr. Parkman, but the doctor had that impenetrable look of his. What was the matter with him? He had talked so freely during the earlier part of the dinner, and now he seemed to have dropped out of it entirely. She caught him looking at Carl once, the keen, narrow gaze of physician to patient. Then she saw, distinctly, that his face darkened, and after that, when he smiled at the things which were being tossed back and forth between Carl and Georgia, it was what she called to herself a made-up smile, and once or twice when Carl said something especially funny, she was quite sure she saw Dr. Parkman wince. A lump rose in Ernestine's throat. Carl seemed to have slipped away from her. This was a mood to which she could not respond, and it seemed he did not expect her to. Almost all of his talk was directed to Georgia, who, with her quick wit and inherent high spirits, was enjoying the pace he set her. It seemed to resolve itself into a duel of quick, easy play of thought and words between those two, but the things they said did not make Ernestine laugh. She smiled, as Dr. Parkman did, a made-up smile. She had always enjoyed Carl's humour immensely, but now, though she had never seen him as brilliant, something about him pulled at her heart. She could not restrain a resentfulness at Georgia for encouraging him, for she could not get away from the feeling that all of this was not grounded on the thing which was Carl himself. It was like nothing in the world so much as the breeziness of a mind which had let itself go. She was glad when at last she could rise from the table. In the library, it was as though he were holding on to Georgia, determined not to let her out of the mood into which he had brought her. The things of which he talked were things having no bearing whatever upon himself. If she had not been there, had simply heard of the things said, she would not have recognized Carl at all. For the first time since they had known one another, Ernestine felt left out, alone. Mrs. McCormick said that they must go, but Carl protested. We're having such a good time, he said. Don't think of going. But Georgia had an engagement. She insisted at last that they must go. Dr. Parkman had remained too, although Ernestine was satisfied he was not enjoying things. Why, what in the world have you done to Carl? laughed Georgia, pinning on her hat. I haven't had such good fun for months. I had no idea he was such a gem of a dinner man. I do not think Carl is very well, said Ernestine, a little coolly. Well, why, bless you, I never saw him in such exuberant mood. Didn't they make the words fly, laughed Mrs. McCormick. My dear, you and the doctor and I were quite left behind. It seemed that way, said Ernestine, trying to keep her chin from quivering. 
when she returned to the library dr parkman and carl were evidently just closing a discussion for carl was saying heatedly now just let me manage things in my own way the doctor seemed reluctant to leave ernestine was alone with him for a minute in the hall and she was sure he started to say something once and then changed it to something else but when he did leave it was with merely the conventional good-bye she walked slowly back to the library carl was sitting in the morris chair his elbow upon one arm of it his hand to his forehead his whole bearing had changed it was as though he had let down again it seemed as though in the last hour he had been intoxicated and this the depression to follow that kind of exuberance but he looked up as he heard her and smiled a little a wan tired smile she was beside him in an instant you seem so happy this afternoon dear she said stroking his hair and now you seem so tired aren't you well carl she asked a little timidly his face then mirrored a dissatisfaction a sort of resentment i talked like a fool this afternoon he said gruffly why no dear only not quite like yourself well the fact of the matter is this after a minute's thought i have a frightful headache i suppose it comes from this trouble with my eyes i thought i wasn't going to be able to keep up and in my effort to do it i he paused and then laughed rather harshly overdid it he seemed anxious for her to reply to that i knew it was something like that she said simply then after a minute is there anything i can do for the head he told her no but that he believed he would turn the chair round with his back to the light and i won't talk dear he said gently i'll just rest a little she helped him with the chair and for a minute sat there on a low seat beside him you know sweetheart resting her cheek upon his hand i don't like those dark glasses at all i'll be so glad when you don't have to wear them why he asked his voice a little muffled because they shut me out i always seem closer to you when i can look into your eyes oh does it pain so as he drew sharply away that did hurt he admitted his voice low i i'd better not talk for a little dear so she said if there was nothing she could do for his head she would leave him while she wrote a couple of letters for a long time he sat there without moving it was the exhaustion which follows intoxication for he had indeed intoxicated himself that afternoon and with an idea it had come about so strangely after they sat down to dinner he had been on the point a half a dozen times of excusing himself on the plea of a bad headache then when they began to talk about doctors those other things had come to him and it was as though the spirit of all those men who had gone down that way entered into him came so close possessed him so completely that he could not hold back those words about them a spirit quite beyond his control had moved him to that little toast after that something perhaps a spark from the nerve of those men of whom he had spoken brought his mind firmly into possession of the feeling that everything was all right it was not that he argued himself out of his fears but rather that something brought the assurance of its being all right and after that there came a number of arguments sustaining the conviction just before dinner he had gone over to the laboratory and looked at the culture it had not shown anything at all at the time he accepted that as a matter of course it was not time for it to show anything but looking back on it after this conviction came to him 
he took the very fact of its not showing anything as proof that there was nothing there to show his mind only grasped one side of it that it showed nothing at all brightening under that he began to talk lightly to joke with georgia and talking that way seemed to enable him to keep hold of the conviction that everything was all right the more he talked the more sure he was of it the gayer he felt the more disposed to let his mind run wild he was a little afraid if he stopped talking this beautiful conviction of it being all right would leave him so he made georgia keep at it georgia was the one could play that sort of game as he talked new arguments came to him the oculist at first he had thought it a bad thing that the oculist could not tell what was the matter now he seized upon that as proving there was nothing the matter at all and dr parkman had said at the last that it did not amount to anything at the time that had been a mere conventional phrase but now in his exhilaration he seized upon it as indisputable truth but always there was the feeling that he must keep on feeling this way or the conviction and all that it meant would go that was why he clung to georgia finally he reached the point where he could distinctly remember getting the other stuff the stuff which did not make any difference on his hands he could fairly see it on his hands could remember distinctly getting it in his eye and then georgia had said something about going and he had begged her not to go but she insisted and he began to feel then that the exhilaration was wearing off that he was coming back to face things to the doubt the uncertainty the suffering and now that he had come back to things as they were he felt inexpressibly tired he went over it again and again trying to gain something now not from any form of excitement but from things as they were suddenly his face brightened he sat there in deep thought and then at last he smiled a little whatever happened must have occurred friday afternoon but he had never in all his life felt as happy about his work as he did before he left the laboratory friday afternoon could a man feel like that would it be in the heart of things to let a man feel that way if he had already entered upon the road of his destruction it had been more than a happiness of the mind it was a happiness of the soul and would not a man's soul send out some note of warning and then that same evening when he and ernestine sat before the fire if already this grim fate had entered into their lives would not their love would not her love all intuition deep seeing feeling that which it could not understand have felt in that moment of supreme happiness some token of what was ahead it could not be that the world jeered at men like that their love would have told them something was wrong ernestine came in just then and he called her to him liebchen he said i've been thinking about that evening of your birthday about how beautiful it was weren't you happy dear as we sat there before the fire so happy karl she murmured warmly glad to have her own karl again everything seemed so beautiful everything seemed so perfectly right he drew her to him with a passion she did not understand his ernestine his wife she who communed with love whose harmony with the great soul of things was perfect they could not have deceived her like that ernestine and love dwelt too closely together she would have received some sign for a moment that calmed and sustained him he believed in it it was his weapon to use against the doubts and terrors which preyed upon him 
but the gloom of his soul seemed to thicken with the deepening of the night his heart grew cold with the coming of the shadows the passing of day inspired in him fears not to be reasoned away he grew very nervous during the evening and finally said he must go over to the laboratory and arrange some things for morning ernestine protested against it and if he must go would he not let her go with him but he told her he believed it would be better for his head if he walked alone for just a little while he did not have a headache more than once in five years he assured her laughing a little and when he did it was apt to upset him when he came back at last it seemed to her a very long time she saw watching from the window that he was walking very slowly almost as if exhausted she could not hold back her alarm at his white warm face something in it gripped at her heart is it worse dear she asked anxiously it's a little bad just now i'll go to bed it will be better then he spoke slowly as though very tired won't you take something for it carl she persisted won't you i do not know of anything to take that would do any good ernestine and he could not quite keep the quiver out of those words but other people take things there are things let me go out and get you something he shook his head doctors don't take much stock in medicine he said with a touch of his usual humor she wanted to stay with him until he went to sleep she wanted to put cold cloths on his head it was hard to avoid ernestine's tenderness it did not show anything he assured himself pleadingly when alone it only showed that it was going to show in the morning i knew that i knew all the time i was going to know in the morning i'll not go to pieces i'll not be a fool about it he kept repeating but a little later ernestine was sure she heard him groan she could not keep away from that oh sweetheart she murmured kneeling by his bed i can't bear it not to help you let me do just some little thing she pleaded he put his hand over hers hold it dear if you aren't too tired i don't want to talk but hold on to my hand his grip grew very tight after a minute she was sure his head must be paining terribly if only he would take something for it in a little while he grew very quiet soon she was sure that he was asleep but after she had at last stolen away he turned and buried his face in his arms End of chapter 14